Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. I want to thank you for joining me again today. We're wrapping up this season rapidly. Now, as you may have heard on Facebook, if you follow me on Facebook, uh, we had a slight change of plans for the season finale just because schedules conflict and we're not going to be able to get that Star Wars episode uh, in the can uh, in time for the season finale. So we're still plotting and planning. We're going to have a new cool idea coming forward here pretty quick. I got some really awesome interviews coming up just this week alone. And so I'm looking forward to to bringing you something that'll that'll knock your socks off for the, the season two finale. But uh, in the meantime, some uh, business to attend to. Of course, if you want to reach out to the podcast and speak with me, uh, you can reach us at uh, fuelyourfandom.buzzsprout.com. That's fuelyourfandom.buzzsprout.com. That's going to show you where all of our uh, podcast locations are. Uh, Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora, and the rest. Uh, if you also want to find us on Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash fuelyourfandom. So all of that said, now I want to tell y'all... I have been looking far and wide for someone who can kind of uh, go head-to-head with me on, on some of these issues and some of these topics and and really just kind of be a mainstay of the show and, and like a partner in crime. And it's been kind of hard. I mean, as you know, uh, with COVID sitting in, this has become more of kind of an interview show and a little bit less of a topic-driven show. But we're, we're looking to change that coming into uh, Season 3. And, and to that end... Uh, I have set up a new producer slash uh, co-host slash cohort slash booking agent. I mean, I literally gave him the run of any kind of hat he wants to wear for this. And so he can call himself my right foot for all I care. But uh, I want to welcome back to the podcast my new cohort, Jim Schweitzer. How you doing, Saint? It is really, really nice to be here. And... Um... I know you've been on the hunt for somebody, uh, you know, uh, bright, who, who, who's, who's deeply entrenched in these cultures, who can be your foil, and I, I'm really just thrilled as hell that you gave up and settled for me. So I'm going <laughs> to do my best to uh, to not embarrass myself and not embarrass you and, and bring as much light and life as I can to this little ship, uh, and I'm happy to be at your right hand for it. Uh, I didn't say I needed anyone bright. That's never been a prerequisite <laughs> for this show. <laughs> Got him! Well, then, thank goodness. Thank goodness I'm here. Um, now, why don't you tell... Uh, I mean, I know we've kind of uh, back and forth a few times on, on the couple of different occasions that you've appeared on the show, but why don't you kind of give us an idea of kind of who you are and what you're into and what, what makes you you? Well, gosh, let's see. Um, I've only ever in my entire adult life made any money doing things that um, nobody has any right making any money at. I've been a musician... Um, I've done uh, quite a bit of, of acting and spoken word, a little stand-up comedy here and there. Um, won some awards for art when I was back in high school, which is a pathetic thing to even drag out. But these days I'm making bones <laughs> as a writer. But I think um, what's interesting, um, not about me, but at least about some of the things that have happened to and around me, is that I've just been around. I mean, I've traveled the country a lot on the back of my work, and I've been in a ton of bands. I've met some interesting people. Um, I've done some some had some pretty great experiences, and so, if nothing else, I, I, I don't consider myself a jack-of-all-trades, but I've just been in, I've had my hand in a lot of weird pies, and, and all that that implies, so. 
Hey, wait a second. Are you that guy that fucked the pie? Um, I know a little <laughs> bit about a lot of stuff, so I can shed at least a tiny bit of light um, onto a, a pretty wide variety of things, and so I think that will hopefully be brought to bear. Um, and, and I should, you know, again, hopefully not embarrass myself or you by, uh, by, by sort of being around and offering my two cents on stuff when called upon to do so. So, um, you know, just drawing off of that, hopefully will give me um, enough fuel to fuel my own fandom so that I can, you know, help to, uh, help to keep this ship on an even keel. And, and that's the cool thing about, uh, I mean, I've known you for, what, it's like 16, 17 years now? Yeah, it's pretty close to that. been a long time. Been a long time. So, I mean, I'm relatively certain that uh, not only do our, our, our hobbies and our interests kind of coalesce, but uh, uh, you, you've got the word salad floating around up in your head <laughs> to kind of add, add a little bit of panache to the, to the proceedings. So. Well, there is a nice big fat overlap between the, uh, the Venn diagram of the stuff that you like and the stuff that I like. So. But, you know, we also differ uh, enough that uh, it's not just going to be like a nice big sycophantic yes man agree fest where we just kind of you know, nod and have the same thoughts on stuff. So, you know, um, I think things uh, should be pretty fun and interesting going forward, and I'm looking forward to being a part of it. Well, that's wonderful, Jim, and, and I want to thank you for jumping on board here. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, that I kind of was uh, thinking about doing, and, and we're going to kind of take today just a little bit different. We're going to do something a little bit, uh, a little bit strange. We're going to kind of make a game of it. Now, I, I've kind of okay. explained to you what the topic is, but I haven't explained to you how we're going to do it. So, for all of y'all listening, here's what we're kind of going to do. I found this really bizarre list of fan theories and headcanon and things that have happened that, for a, a wide variety of topics. And I kind of want to do it like kind of like a game show. So, what I'm going to do, and Jim, I hope you'll indulge me here. Uh, what I want to do is I'm going to read you the fan theory, and they're all just about a paragraph, and uh, kind of give you uh, a breakdown of what that's going to be, and I'm not going to tell you what it is ahead of time, uh, so you've not seen this list, but I I'm going to I'm, I'm going to I'm going to spell it all out, read the the fan theory, and then what I want to do is kind of have like a two minute timer to kind of weigh in whether or not fan theory holds water where it works where it doesn't work where it breaks down and and then we ding move on to the next one so uh i love it i, I found i found this article on cracked which has a about a 50 percent hit or miss for me as far as their writing goes so uh, yeah i i did not write these i i i've heard of some of these before but i did not write these these are not my theories yeah. This is just uh, a wide variety of fandoms and where people weigh in on them. I'm so, with you ready? on the Cracked thing. I'm old enough to remember when Cracked was uh, kind of the poor man's mad magazine, and they even had their own dopey face little mascot. It was uh, uh, Sylvester P. Smythe was the foil to Alfred E. Newman, and they were just sort of like a um, like the great value mad magazine as I was growing up. And I was a huge mad magazine fan, so um, I have kind of a love-hate relationship also with Cracked. But, you know, we'll, uh, we'll see if they're on their game with these, uh, these fan theories or not. We shall see. And I hope this is fun for y'all. Now, again, like I told y'all, if y'all want to weigh in on any of these fan theories, you're absolutely free to do that. Hit me up on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fuelyourfandom, or you can hit us in our email, which is fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. So, I'm going to give you the, the fandom, and then I'm going to read the blurb, and then we got two, two minutes to kind of bat it back and forth. You ready? Fun. Back to the future. 
Marty in Back to the Future has died repeatedly and we're just watching what happens after Doc Brown fixes things and saves him. When Doc Brown appears and pulls him out of the tunnel, he knows to come right then because that's where and when Marty died. The band who frees Marty from that car are also time travelers sent by Doc. This explains why they have a guitar too modern for 1955. Thoughts? Well, I have a feeling that the Occam's Razor principle is going to come up quite a bit over the course of this discussion. Occam's Razor, of course, uh, for those unfamiliar, is the theory that says the simplest explanation for something tends to be the most logical. So I think that's kind of a stretch. I mean, if you really want to get into string theory and, and really just dig around in quantum physics and shit, then, you know, um, it's a possibility that timelines can be interrupted and things can change when observed and all that, but it just kind of seems to me like somebody watched Edge of Tomorrow way too, one too many times, and they're trying to sort of retroactively apply uh, the, the Tom Cruise theory to Michael J. Fox, and I, I'm not buying it. I think it's interesting, but it, it doesn't hold water for me. I was kind of there up until the point where they said that the musicians were time lords or whatever the hell they called them, but uh, I, I think, yeah. I mean, there is an idea that Doc has a predestinated or predestined knowledge of uh, where to dangle the flags to pick Marty up, where to grab him off the side of, of the Biff's Casino, for instance. He seems to have a really strong knowledge of where to be and when to be there. So I mm-hmm. kind of give that part a little bit of credit, but for the most part, I mean, yeah, it is what it is. And like you said, Occam's Razor. I mean, going forward from, from Back in the Future 2 on, when you could just dump a bunch of coffee grounds and eggshells into the Mr. Fusion and you don't have to source plutonium, it's entirely possible that maybe, oh, great, Scott, I lost Marty again. You know, Doc could pop into the DeLorean and, you know, zoom himself back to 30 seconds before Marty gets creamed by the truck in the tunnel or something. It's it's possible. But then you start getting into all these really hair-splitty, bizarre paradoxes with time travel theory, and it's just... It just seems like a little much. I mean, the story is what the story is, so to, to try and go and look for fairies at the bottom of the garden when the garden itself is so beautiful seems a bit gilding the lily to me. Okay, time's up. Uh, Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins is on drugs. Bird is her dealer. That's why neither holds down a steady job. That guy who flies when he laughs is also clearly high, and drugs are the <laughs> only explanation for that trip that they take where they see the animated penguins. It's a jolly holiday with Mary. Go. Well, okay, there seems to be this trend amongst people who want to try and, um, you know, pull together fan theories of trying to make innocent things very edgelordy and taking something as, as admittedly wholesome as Julie Andrews and, and, and Dick Van Dyke, you know, two of, uh, of the greatest entertainment treasures that have ever graced celluloid and trying to apply some, like, stoner retroactive theory to it just seems a little bit unnecessary. I mean, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, if you, we don't want to necessarily uh, put too whitewashy a coat of paint on the Victorian era or sort of like, you know, um, turn-of-the-century England, um, these people were, you know, using opium and absinthe and all kinds of things. So um, I'm going to go ahead and give that one a 50-50 split. I think it's a little edgelordy to say, ah, it was all drugs, but given the realities of the era, I don't think it's necessarily all that far-fetched. Right, and... and I'm- I always kind of uh, thought of it more like a like a like a live action cartoon, like what you get yeah. with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where yes. you got a, a cartoon in a thinly veiled humanoid shell, and, and that's kind of where I always thought Mary Poppins was just kind of like her and Dick were or her and Bert, excuse me, were part of this 
animated world and this the way they they live and they just kind of like almost visiting in the live action world yeah able to uh sort of uh to move between dimensions as it were that makes that makes sense to me but i'm you know i think drugs is a possibility but it just seems a little uh seems a little edgelordy to me but you know it's 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 certainly a, a plausible idea yeah i i mean i can see it like you said it's about a 50 50 yeah um fight club hmm Tyler Durden in Fight Club isn't merely an alternate personality. He was a real person who died in a car crash caused by the narrator's company. This explains the narrator's grief at the start of the movie, his desire for vengeance, and the movie's obsession with trashing cars. You're the all-singing, all-dancing crap of the world. What do you think? Uh, I think that is somebody who started with a theory and then worked backwards trying to find evidence of it. Um... If you go to, uh, there's a website that I love that's uh, called tvtropes.com, and it's a catalog of narrative storytelling devices, things that, that a creator of a piece of, of like a movie or, or music or video game or a novel or whatever, can narrative devices that the creator can count on already being present in the minds of the audience that just mean certain things and denote certain things. And the unreliable narrator is certainly one of those. Um, but Hand of God is the one that I think uh, is, is evokes uh, for me for this one. Um, Hand of God is the trope that says, if the creator of a given piece of work comes into the fandom and says, you guys are fucking idiots, this is what I actually intended, the blue curtains weren't meant to symbolize anything, they were just meant to say that I wrote it in a hotel room that had blue curtains, and you're all wrong. Um, so Chuck Palahniuk has come through forward a couple of different times and said that, you know, he's, he's poked holes in a lot of fan theories saying, nope, it's, you're, you know, I understand you, you guys are looking for meaning, you're looking for additional interpretations, but what I meant when I wrote it, was that Tyler Durden was a figment of the narrator's imagination. He was his alter ego, and it is as it appears to be on screen. So it's already pretty fucked up and obtuse, so for you to look for further interpretations of that that are even more fucked up and obtuse, is pretty fucked up and obtuse. So take my word for it. <laughs> what you see is what you get with that movie. And the book. I tend to agree, and I did read the book as well, and so it's, it kind of spells it out a lot more uh, precisely in the book. Uh, yes. And then they've, they've gone on to explain it a bit better in... Uh, uh, Chuck Maloniak wrote... Uh, a series of comics that he called like Fight Club Two, and, yeah. and he kind of explained further the the Tyler uh, narrator. We call him Jack. I always call him Jack. Uh, so, the, so the Tyler, Jack, and and Marla angle. Yep. So, uh, so okay. So that's a fun one. I really enjoyed Fight Club. I thought that was a great movie. Really, yeah, I thought so up. too. Uh, mostly because um, Jared Leto gets his ass kicked in that movie, and, and Jared Leto. I, I have a love-hate relationship with the idea of Jared Leto because, I mean, you know, first of all, the guy's beautiful. He's just a beautiful human being. Uh, he's absurdly talented. He won an Oscar for, for uh, Dallas Buyers Club. His, his band is great. And I, uh, if you Google around on some of the uh, groupie websites, uh, a lot of the um, women who have, who have hooked up with Jared Leto said the guy's hung like a fucking Clydesdale. So I just I get annoyed at them because I'm like, you know what, leave something for the rest of us, you fucking gorgeous, rich, famous, talented, Oscar-winning, giant-dicked god. Just fuck off. You know, some of us, put something else, just quit taking all the fries. So Jared Leto was great, and seeing him get his ass kicked in Fight Club was sort of a, a, a kind of a moment of, I mean, I love him. He's great. I, he's, he's a fantastic performer, but I hate the idea of Jared Leto. Not him personally, but he just, he's got too much. He got, he got too yeah. much in, in the grand uh, buffet of life. He just, he overate. So, screw that guy. I felt like destroying something beautiful. <laughs> All right. Disney's Beauty and the Beast. 
Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast is too old to be Chip's mother. His real parent is the Beast, who was 21 when the curse stopped. Everyone's aging. And who's his mother? The enchantress behind the curse. When human, Chip and the Beast even dress alike. I told you she was pretty mama, didn't I? All right, Chip, now that'll do. Huh. Yeah, you know what? Um... That, that I always kind of thought Angela Lansbury's character was a little bit too old to be Chip's yeah. mother. She is matronly, even, yes. Yeah, in human form, as being like the very dowdy, matronly kind of British governess almost. So right. yeah, um, that would make sense. And, or maybe it's one of those things where, um, you know, his his mother was way too young, so grandmother assumes parenthood. That's something that happens in the culture sometimes. Um, but I don't know. I mean, that seems to be kind of one of those things again, like somebody kind of noticing a detail and then trying to retroactively put together a story uh, that, that would make that detail make sense. Um, I, I saw Beauty and the Beast once only years ago when it first came out, so I don't remember what Chip's human form looked like, but I do remember, you know, Angela Lansbury, um, you know, she's, she's still around, God bless her, but she was elderly even then. Okay, so I'm seeing it now. Yeah, Blue Jacket, you know, makes sense. Um, so, I, yeah, I, 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 I think that's I think... a possibility. I've always thought there was something a little bit hanky about the fact that, uh, I mean, Angela Lansbury, when she played the role, was what, mid-60s? Uh, yeah, late somewhere 60s. I mean, I know she's old. She's hella old at that point. And Chip was meant to be like around 8, 8 to 10 years old. So, I mean, it, it kind of follows in that she was, like you said, a governess and not necessarily yeah. uh, the... I mean, illegitimacy would be if he did have a kid with this enchantress, it would have been a completely illegitimate child. And maybe he was too. Because, I mean, we all know that uh, before uh, he took his beast form, that he was kind of a dick. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and that's the reason that she uh, cursed him to, to live like a beast, is because he pushed people away and, and now he has to. And so I think. I mean, that one, I think, out of all of them we've read so far, I think that one has the most kind of weight to it. Yeah. Well, Disney so. tends to be a pretty uh, high target for a lot of the folks looking for headcanon and fan theories, just because they're so uh, universally wholesome that um, people are always trying to, to find, you know, dirty subtext or poke holes in, in how, how family-friendly <laughs> it all is. So an illegitimate child on the sly would, would certainly dovetail pretty nicely with um, people trying to, find, trying to find smut in Disney cartoons. I get it, yeah. All right. Ghostbusters. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> Reginald Bell Johnson has played a cop a bunch of times in Die Hard, Ghostbusters, and a couple of other 80s movies, and then for years on Family Matters. Imagine all of these are the same character. We get a story of a cop traumatized by a paranormal experience, shot, and who then finally loses his mind. So you hang in there, man. You hear me? You hang in there. Yeah, thanks, partner. Uh, I mean, I think that's more of a case of typecasting than than a multiverse linked by one character. <laughs> um, it really I mean, is. Reginald Bell Johnson, he's a great actor, and he plays a cop really well. I mean, he played a cop in Die Hard. He played a cop in Ghostbusters. He's been a cop a lot. Um, but it's it, it brings it brings to mind this other interesting theory that I remember hearing a while ago, and this is a rabbit hole that that could be an episode unto itself. The Tommy Westfall. Um, TV multiverse theory. There's a theory that some, th some absurd number, like hundreds of television series, all actually take place in the same universe because of 
the scene at the very end of Saint Elsewhere. Yes, uh, where, yes, yeah. yes. I remember Tommy hearing Westfall, about this. The, the, the autistic son. It's implied he's autistic. Has a snow globe, and he shakes it up, and it's it's kind of the dream ending, like like on Dallas or like so many other Hackney TV shows, where we find out that Saint Allegis, the hospital, was inside the snow globe the whole time. So the whole thing was inside of his memory. But then there are characters like um, Richard Belzer, who played a cop in. Baltimore Life on the Street, who's also a cop in uh, the Law and Order series. He's played mm-hmm. the same character whose name escapes me right now, but in like seven or eight different series. So all Wasn't of those it Munch? are Munch. Yeah, yeah, it was Munch, uh, Detective Munch. That's right. So he played the same character on, on a, like six or seven different TV shows, and all of those kind of form the nexus, the core of this Tommy Westfall multiverse theory, and it branches out to such absurd lengths that it, it, it really could be an episode unto itself. So I think maybe that's kind of the, the thought process behind that. Um, but, I mean, you know, Reginald Vell Johnson, I mean, Ghostbusters took place in New York, and he's also a cop in Die Hard, and that took place in Los Angeles. So either that guy's absurdly mobile and just, like, just wants to really be a cop in a whole bunch of different cities, or um, that's just somebody engaging in a little bit of wistful thinking, noticing the obvious typecasting that Hollywood tends to engage in far too often. I like that explanation, too. But I, I do remember that that uh, theory you were talking about with uh, the Westfall theory and, and that was a really prevalent one for a really long time. And, and they yeah, have a giant so flowchart with all the shows on it. Yeah. Somewhere it, that I saw. I, I'm reminded of uh, Charlie Kelly's character in Always Sunny trying to explain on the whiteboard how <laughs> shit that works. Class, and, even if you haven't watched the show, you've seen the meme with Charlie Day in front of the yeah. yarn, just waving his arms around with this complex chart behind him, trying to explain the connections. Yeah, and that's what I feel like every time I've seen that one, too. So yeah. We're going to do a couple more before we take a break. Now, here's The Avengers. Mm. Agent Coulson from Marvel is a super soldier. Specifically, he was that kid from the original Captain America movie who picked up Cap's shield, Starstruck. This explains one otherwise unexplicable scene in which he shows superpowers as well as his possible resurrection. You like this? We started working on the prototype after you sent the destroyer. Even I don't know what it does. Want to find out? Uh, having watched all of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. now, they, they explained yeah. his resurrection away, like, ten ways to Sunday, so, uh, yeah. I mean, I get where they're trying to go with it, I understand wanting to, it's almost like anthropomorphizing a character, trying to make yeah. him into this larger than life and, and badder than ass, you know, uh, but I mean, I don't think this one holds any kind of weight, I don't think Coulson was any kind of superhuman at all or at least we would know we'd we'd have known about it well colson kind of was the greek chorus there for a while he was he was the way that marvel very early on demonstrated that this universe was linked by you know because if you had you're shooting the thor movie you've got natalie portman and chris hemsworth uh robert downey jr is busy chris evans is busy they can't be in the movie but they can get clark Gregg to show up in all these movies to demonstrate that you know they're all taking place in the same universe and that's where Marvel TV kind of fucked up as far as I'm concerned by branching off Agents of <laughs> S.H.I.E.L.D. And I feel I felt really bad for that show because they started the show, the show got greenlit, they produced the show, and then it was like a season and a half or two seasons in when S.H.I.E.L.D. They essentially got destroyed at the end of Civil yeah. War. So they had to go underground, and then pretty soon, well, it's not really canon, but we're going to still bring him back for Captain Marvel. And the whole Marvel TV, to say nothing of like the whole uh, Defenders Netflix universe, which they bungled pretty badly... Uh, the shows themselves were good, but like not, not tying them in and trying to say retroactively they weren't really part of it. That the whole thing, like the, the early days of the Marvel universe, you know, the, like Kevin Feige and 
and the other people that worked on it, oh, it's all connected was their tagline. Everything's connected. You, you're going to miss parts of the story. And I remember watching Civil War the weekend it opened with the huge you know, helicarrier crashing into the S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters and then watching the next episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. like it was like on a week later and it played into that and they, they had the footage from the movie um, with all that stuff happening. And then they just kind of decided it got too hard. I mean, it was really hard as it was for... It was a Biden lot to, to wrangle. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot. I mean, for him to keep that, all that in his head and have like a master Bible of all the, the huge storyline and how it all connected together was going to be hard enough without bringing the TV into it where you're shooting 22 episodes a season or whatever it is. So, I don't know. I like Clark Gregg. I think the character of Coulson has a lot of interesting shit going on, but like I think that the TV version sort of descended into we have to come up with a new episode every week and we got to keep it interesting, so we're going to have him have Cree blood. We're going to have, you know, he's, they're going to go into outer space, you know. And it just kind of, I, I stopped watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. after the, um, the, the season where Quake destroyed the Earth because it just it seemed to me like, you know, they, they really went too far afield in trying to kind of tell a compelling story and, and got too far away from the original thrust of what the show was supposed to be about. So I never finished the series. I probably will someday, but I feel bad for Clark Gregg because I feel like Coulson started off as a really great character and they just didn't know what to do with him after a while once they had to keep on putting him in stuff. Right, and I think uh, one of the greatest things that the TV show ever did, and me and my whole family, we watched that thing. We watched the shit out of it. I think the greatest thing they ever did was diverge from the movies and kind of set themselves apart Mm. because they were able to get more accomplished in this separated part of it. Like you said, when when the whole shield fall and everything else happened, they kind of wrote themselves into a corner where it's like, well, now if we're going to be connected, mm-hmm. how are we agents of an organization that doesn't fucking exist anymore? And how are we going to be in the same universe as like a Thor and an Iron Man? But, you know, of course, Chris Hemsworth and Robert Downey Jr. are very busy and they're movie stars and they're not going to ever show. I think, if I remember right, who was it? The only character from the films that every, well, Maria Hill, uh, Colby Smulders was actually in the show a couple of times. Um, I think Sam Jackson showed up once, but then another time, Lady Sif, who's the, I, I can't remember the actress's name, but she, um, from Thor, she did show up in one of the episodes, but they were supposedly, uh, when they set out to do that show, they were going to bring in, like, stars from the movies to really tie it into the larger MCU, and then it just, it didn't wind it up working out that way. Yeah. Like a fart in the wind. Yep. Too bad. Okay. Good we're on its own merits, though. We're going to do one more, and we're going to take a break. All right. The Dark Knight. Mm, okay. Joker has a subplot where the character thought he might be Bruce Wayne's brother. We had that idea years ago, and it actually makes more sense if you consider every Batman story except for the Joker. So now what they're trying to say is that uh, Heath Ledger's Joker might have been connected to Batman in uh, The Dark Knight and previous to that. That doesn't give us a whole lot to go on. Because it's all part of the plan. I don't think so. No, I, I think you know, I don't think so. The either. only compelling evidence that we really got for that was in Joker, and, and even that was kind of a tenuous threat at best. Yeah, uh, and anyone Joker's... who has any kind of the minute, intimate knowledge of Batman uh, can kind of go like, okay, yeah, that's that makes that's interesting, but I mean, we've seen this character for how many years now, and yeah. there's nothing up to this point that would prove to this that this is actually a thing, I mean... Well, I think what made the Todd Phillips film possible is the fact that the Joker, the character of the Joker, within the books and also within the larger sort of DCEU, has always had a really nebulous um, origin story. 
Like, we know that the, the, the Penguin is Chester Cobblepot. We know that the Riddler is Edward Digma. But we don't really have, a, you know, a consistent bead on who the Joker was before he became the Joker. And his origin story keeps changing. He fell into a vat of chemicals in the uh, Tim Burton, Michael Keaton Batman. He was the guy that killed the Waynes. Um, he's Thomas Wayne's illegitimate son in the Todd Phillips movie. The fact that the Joker has, in the comics and in the films, kind of always had a really malleable, nebulous, completely unspecified origin story allows whoever is working with the character to sort of project their own bullshit onto it and make him come from wherever they want him to come from. Um, right. It's always been really unique a, in that. They just had a comic series called Three Jokers. It kind of explains the three different phases of the Joker's character, the comedian, mm-hmm. the criminal, and the gangster. Sure. And it kind of breaks it down as to as saying specifically that there was never one Joker. It was different people over the time, you know? I mean, you know, I think, yeah, you're right. The DCEU especially has not done as admirable a job as the MCU has done, and that's not a ding on DC. Um, they just, they, they weren't as skilled, I think, at having, like, a mastermind, like a Kevin Feige behind the scenes keeping everything kind of together. So, you know, you, you, you have a... They're, they're rebooting Suicide Squad. There's a Joker movie that doesn't really fit in with anything that Christian Bale or Ben Affleck did. I mean, it's they don't really have the same coherence on that side of the the film world, that comic book universe, as Marvel did. So it allows them a certain amount of freedom to be able to ever do what they want, but it also, you know, kind of makes things confusing because you're really not sure, you know, movie to movie or book to book, um, you know, whose story is, is going to overlap with where, and you can't really count on any consistency in the characters at all. Agreed. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more fan theories and where they suck, where they're great, <laughs> and somewhere in the middle. Uh, stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. All right. So now, uh, continuing on the theme that we had from the last segment, we're going to go with a few more Batman theories because, hey, I'm a Batman fan from way back. Uh, as, yeah. as early as I can remember, it's been it's been Batman and and. Uh, even before Keaton's Batman in '89, it was it was uh, uh, Adam West's Batman from '66 uh, that really kind of got me going. So, some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Uh, you I mean, and I are of wait. the age that that stuff ran in syndication after school. So, you know, I used to watch Forever. you know the, the, the Biff Boom Pow, you know, Holy Doctor Freeze Batman. I used to, I used Burt Ward and and, uh, and and Adam West. I used to watch that shit constantly, and that that really fostered a love for the character in me from a young age as well. And that's great. And, and kind of as an aside, it's one of those things that it's a really great story. I, I went to New York uh, probably around 14 years ago uh, to meet up with my buddy Robert, who's been a guest on this show, Dr. Robert Moorhead. Uh, we went there to visit. Me and my friend Lee went to visit him uh, in New York because he's going to Columbia University at the time. It becomes uh, St. Patrick's Day. And I don't want to be in New York City for St. Patrick's Day. Oh, hell no. That's amateur all. Right. Exactly. Um, those of us with real Irish heritage get a little bit pissed at the people faking the funk. So Half Irish uh, over here, totally get it. <laughs> so we jumped the train and we headed over to New Jersey. And normally that's nothing to be proud of, but New Jersey <laughs> Red Bank happens to be uh, the home of uh, a really big inspiration for me, Kevin Smith. Sure. And over in, in Red Bank, New Jersey, we've got uh, Jane Silent Bob's Secret Stash. And we've got uh, the block of stores over in Leonardo where they filmed Clerks. Yep. 
Uh, and so that's kind of what our pilgrimage for the day was going to be. So we ended up going to uh, Jane Silent Bob's Secret Stash. And we were on the train from New York to New Jersey talking about the things that we would love to see, uh, like on DVD or love to have, that we'll probably never see. And my, my, my entry into that at the time, and this tells you how long ago this was, was the Batman uh, 66 series because so many companies and so many producers had their hands in that pie yeah. that they couldn't get the rights nailed down to one particular group enough to Ugh. release a DVD box set. And so I was lamenting the fact that, oh my God, I'll probably never see a box set of this. And so we're looking through the secret stash. I mean, it's like nerdcore nirvana. It's all over the place. Props and, and, and everything in there. And we're taking pictures like a couple of goddamn... Uh, uh, schoolgirls in fucking Florida <laughs> for spring break and so uh, we get to the counter to pay for everything and, and Walt Flanagan of uh, uh, tell him Steve Dave fan is well, ringing up our 90s. orders yeah uh, we won't get into the fact that he gave us the wrong directions to get to the block of stores but um, on the counter there's this spinner rack of I'm gonna uh, I don't know if I should say this out loud bootleg DVDs Mm. Okay, I'm just going to say... Discs of dubious origin. Discs of dubious origin. Kevin, if you want to uh, get mad at me, you can send me an email. I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. But um, tish. Uh, <laughs> but so sitting there flipping through the spinner rack, there's dumb things. And I picked up a couple of things. There's like the Star Wars Holiday Special. Of course. And uh, there was uh, uh, Justice League, the TV show. Uh, and the probably the Fantastic Four Corman movie. Yeah, all the, I all almost the, bought that again. Nerd, I already had it. Yeah, I already all had that, that one. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> it is. Uh, although, I'd ironically, rather... the thing in that one was way better than anything that's been on the screen oh, yeah. since. So, but oh, yeah, and I'd much rather better. watch that than that uh, 2015 reboot. I never even saw that. Don't. Hopefully they'll do something um, right by it now that they got them back in the MCU. But anyway, never mind. Go ahead. So as I spin the spinner rack, I've already got a handful of DVDs, and I turn it, and it's like, right there is Adam West and Burt Ward, and it's a fat case, and I'm like, oh, shit. For real? I was literally just talking about this. There's no way I can leave this store without this. It's like $75. I don't care. I paid the money down, and I, I have it. I still have it, and it's fantastic because it looks like it was just ripped right off of NBC back in the day. <laughs> Like you're waiting for the commercial spots to kick in. It's got grain. It's got it's got that patina. I want to call it. But and that just brings further authenticity to it. You know, that's that just makes it real. That's how you I want. To see I it. wouldn't want it to be high def cleaned up. That's yeah. just weird. Fuck anyway. masters. I want to watch it in 480p like I did when I was nine. <laughs> this looks too clean. Too clean. I don't uh, like it. <laughs> Okay, so that was all kind of an aside. Sorry about that. I got distracted. Well, a real quick aside uh, to that, though. I found out yesterday, just yesterday, this is interesting, that um, Burt Ward, who was, of course, Robin in the original Batman series. Holy, here we go again, Batman. I found of out course. through a friend that um, Burt Ward these days has, has parlayed his, uh, his, his fame, fortune, and whatever he has left of his celebrity into a dog food company called Gentle I'm, Giant. I've heard about that, and, and I heard about that while I was working at Amazon because we, yeah. we would sell the food, and it's... It's not a very subtle packaging. No. If you've seen the packaging. It's like Burt Ward, Robin, Batman and Robin all over the packaging. But hey, I don't give a shit. He's doing a good job. It's like a, a, a German Shepherd rescue. Yeah. 
He that apparently, he, uh, his, he and his wife own some Great Danes that make it to like 23 and 25 years old. And you, you maybe, you're lucky to get 9, 10 years out of a Dane. Large breed dogs, just they don't live very long at all. And he's got some, some dogs that are huge that have lived twice, more than twice their life expectancy, apparently credited to this food. So good for him. Good on him, and he actually made an appearance in the Crisis on Infinite Earths on DC's uh, CWDC shows as Burt Ward Batman. Not not in costume, or Burt Ward Robin, but not in costume, but like it's it's Burt Ward walking a couple of uh, of uh, of dogs and Holy Crimson Skies of Death! It was a fun little <laughs> cameo, but Alright, so back to the fan theories. The Dark Knight Rises. We're going to go right back to Joker here. Whether or not Batman actually ends up killing the Joker. This explains Joker's absence and Batman's madness at the start of The Dark Knight Rises. And the famous ending of the comic book The Killing Joke, where Bats and Joker share a laugh. Batman kills him there too, only no one noticed. What do you think I am, crazy? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? Well, I don't think, I think if he did, you, you kind of have to go back to the classic dance. Like if you remember, I know you do, Dark Knight Returns, where Joker is basically taunting Batman for not killing him. Um, he's saying things like, you know, you, you're my other half. You're the other side of my coin. If you kill me, what the fuck are you supposed to do? Like that classic scene in Princess Bride where, you know, um, Mandy Patinkin says, you know, I've been in the revenge business for so long, I don't know what to do with myself anymore. And Joker basically says, you know, the fact that I'm able to continue and kill all these people and keep on getting released from Arkham and keep on escaping is because you won't kill me. You know, you, why wouldn't you kill me? And, and Batman, of course, has his, his honor code where his parents died, so he's against death. Um, so I think any piece of, of collateral in the Batman world where he kills the Joker, and I include, actually, Dark Knight Returns in this one, the Alan Moore book, I think it has to be considered kind of like an alternate, like almost a um, Elseworlds. Uh, DC has the Elseworlds series where they talk about alternate reality kind of things because, you know, Batman has that, he's got that code, he won't kill. And that is both a really tidy way of kind of describing, you know, putting um, a positive spin on the fact that he's a man that dresses up like Dracula and beats up the mentally ill. He won't kill them, that'll beat him up. Um, but it also means that, you know, the rogues gallery can consistently keep on coming back. You know, uh, Nygma's always going to get out of, of, of Arkham. Joker's always going to escape from Arkham. Cobblepot's going to bribe an official and, and be able to escape. He's always going to have these great recurring foils keep coming back, and, and that dynamic is established. So any, any story where Bats actually kills Joker, I think, has got to be looked at with a pretty gimlet eye as being outside of the, the, the regular canon. I agree, and and I mean, because I mean, we all know that Batman's not afraid to kill people. I mean, he can have his romanticized code and say he doesn't see sure. purpose to kill people, but he'll, he'll put him in the hospital. He just won't kill him. <laughs> uh, what was it Sean Connery said in in the, the Untouchables? He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. Uh, rest in peace, Sean Connery. But yeah, I remember I, there was a, a, a story, um, or a couple of panels that have always stuck in my memory. Um, and it was from Batman Year One, and I had the the um, the complete was it Alan Moore? I think it was Alan Moore. The complete Alan Moore Batman. I had a leather bound uh, comic of that, and this to me sums up Batman's character. Um, it's it's Batman Year One, so it's kind of an alternate retelling of the origin story of Batman. He's hiding. Right, under that a was staircase. the edgier version, yeah, wasn't it? The, another okay. yet the, the umpteenth gritty reboot of the character. So he's hiding under a staircase, 
and there's this crook that's coming down the staircase, and you get a little square panel that's that's Bruce's internal monologue as he's thinking of how he wants to deal with this guy, and he's, he you hear you you see him thinking as this crook is descending the staircase and he's hiding underneath it. There are seven defensive moves from this position. Three of them disarm with minimal contact. Three of them kill, and one of them hurts. And then on the word hurts, he basically like blows out the guy's knee with a sidekick and takes him down. And then he just stands over him, looking, interrogating him while he's screaming bloody murder because his knee has just been blown out. And he's, he's rifling through his pockets. Oh, man, pills? Gee, cigarettes? There's no end to your bad habits. He's literally patting this guy down and looking for evidence while the guy's screaming bloody murder because he's in incredible agony. And that just to me is like, you know, I mean, I love Batman and I always will. But he is kind of a sadist. I mean, if you really think about it, you know? I, I remember really seeing a is. tweet at one point where it's like, yeah, we, we all lionize Batman as being this great hero and the superior detective in the Dark Knight and everything, but he really does just dress up in riot gear and beat up in mentally ill people. Because they don't go to jail, they go to Arkham. It's an asylum. It's right there in the canon. That's true. All right, one more Batman one, I promise. It will go away from there. No right. worries. Uh, Batman versus Superman gave us a different Joker. This one actually Robin. Jason Todd, gone bad. Joker appears to have tattoos covering scars matching the bullet holes in Robin's costume. This theory also explains why this Joker is so terrible. Oh, I'm not gonna kill you. I'm just gonna hurt you. Really, really bad. Huh, well, I mean, Robin has been kind of a classic punching bag. I mean, we all, you know, watched uh, Joker crown as a Jason Todd with a crowbar. Um, you know, and Dark Knight Returns, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty heavily implied that there was a previous Robin that got killed. And then there's the whole, is it the whole Red Hood thing, uh, where he comes back? And so mm-hmm. Robin is, is, is portrayed as being kind of corruptible in a way, kind of like, you know, he's the only person outside of Alfred that, uh, that Bruce is really close to, that he cares about. And that makes him vulnerable. You know, uh, Robin is, is Bruce's kryptonite. If you can get to Robin, if you can beat Robin up, if you can kill Robin... You know, you're going to drive a guy who's already pretty OCD and pretty uh, driven by hatred and revenge pretty well over the edge. So Robin's always kind of been the weak link in the Batman thing. So I think it's an interesting idea to kind of take that character and empower him, even if it means that they send him to the other side of the aisle, so to speak, to, uh, to be a villain. Because um, I just think that Robin, as a character, no matter who is wearing the costume in that particular um, timeline or, or piece of, of work, Robin is uh, is a lot of things, but he, he rarely ever gets to be human. He, he's more of a symbol. He represents a weakness. He represents a lot of things. So to give him the agency to say, I'm making my own choice, and I'm going to go to the other side, and I know all your weaknesses, and I know all your moves, and I know everything. You taught me. You're the best there is, and you taught me. It's an interesting way to do it. So it would be, as a writer, I think, a pretty good box of toys to play with if that was the story they wanted to go for. Right, and if we didn't already have contradictory evidence to to that, I would say that might hold a little more weight. Yeah. But we've had uh, uh, Zach come out and say that uh, it's not Jason Todd's costume; it's Dick's, Dick Grayson's. So it kind of shoots a hole in that. No pun intended, but uh, yeah. <laughs> also, kind of kind of an aside. But I heard a joke that that matches this. Okay, so. Why does Batman wear all dark clothes and hide in the shadows? Because he doesn't want to get shot. Because he doesn't want to get shot. (laughs) Why does Robin returns too? Right. Why does Robin wear bright colors and and leap around? Because Batman doesn't want to get shot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember the scene in uh, in Dark Knight Returns where um, 
Um, I think it's, I want to say it's Two-Face. Uh, has a sniper rifle in a helicopter, and he pops Bruce one in the chest, and, and there's a scene of him falling off a building, and his, his bat symbol is torn open, and you can see, like, the Kevlar underneath. And I think he's got, again, the internal monologue going, and you hear him say, yeah, why in the hell do you think I wear a target on my chest? I can't armor my head. Right. So, yeah. Exactly. But, yeah. Okay, so we're going to veer off of the Batman for a little bit. Now, this one is actually... This one's been kicking around for a long time. This is one of my personal favorites. So I'm not going to wait until you're done. So I'm going to let you do this one first. Inspector Gadget. Dr. Claw is the real Inspector Gadget. His hand is metal and his voice sounds mechanical. He's part machine and there has to be more than coincidence between that being true for both characters. Idiotic Gadget also appears to be a terrible candidate for augmentation. Clearly, Claw was the one who received the augments after an injury. Gadget is his faulty robot replacement, and Claw vows revenge on the Sith impersonating him. Next time, Gadget, I promise I'll get you next time. Wow, that actually is, uh, I, I totally buy that. I buy that because, uh, yeah, I right? mean... It, it would really be, if you were, like, we all have, have bought that piece of electronics, like the first generation Xbox that gets the red ring of death, or we're an early adopter of a technology that doesn't quite pan out. Um, you know, how many different versions of the Super Soldier were there before they hit on the combination that actually worked out? So, that makes sense to me. I mean, you know, his voice was always, I'll get you, Gadget. It was very gravelly and deep and low and stupid, and he's got the mechanical hand, and you never see his face, so maybe that was something that um, got kind of screwed up somewhere along the way. And he would be, I think, resentful of the fact that, you know, here's this bumbling idiot that comes along. He continues to somehow find ways to fail upwards, despite my superior intellect and better gadgets. No pun intended. This guy always seems to win, and he's dumber than me, and he was he's my replacement, and I hate him. That would de- definitely offer the character a motivation to want to take this guy down. Um, because, you know, you know as well as I do, the most interesting villains are the ones that think they're the heroes of their own story. You know, if somebody's just a mustache twirling, going to tie up the girl and put her on the railroad tracks, villain who's evil for the sake of being evil, that's not an interesting motivation. Like, the best villains are like um, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's Daredevil in the Netflix series. He, he's, he's thinking that, you know, he's, he's the hero of his own story, and he's just taking a different way of going about achieving the, the, the improvement of Hell's Kitchen, meanwhile Matt Burdock's trying to stop him. So it would make total sense that, that Claw would have such a mad-on for Gadget if he is his more easily manipulated... Um, why does he keep winning uh, stupid replacement? How does he keep winning? Uh, that, that would, yeah. Well, he, he, he just fucks up and he, he somehow pulls it out at the end. Because plot armor, you talked about that on yeah. previous episodes. Yeah. You know, but that would make total sense. I, I'm going to buy into that and that's going to be the headcanon I accept from now on. That's been my favorite one. Like I said, I heard that one years ago and that's just, that's always just rang the truest for me. It's like, I actually stopped and thought about it and pondered it for a few minutes going, you know... I don't see one single flaw in this. The only flaw you would see no. is Penny and Brain working with the impersonator. But even then, maybe Penny doesn't know. Maybe Brain doesn't know. Uh, maybe he's that good a... a I'm, I'm going to sigh from bumbling all the time. Maybe he's that good a copy that they just don't know. Yeah, I don't know. could be. Or, you know, maybe he know. is kind of like the, uh, the, the, the $6 million man character where he started off as a, as a person... And he was on the, uh, the, the 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 police force, and they just stuck all the augments into him. Um, they robocop him, you know. They robocop him up. Yeah, that could be. 
And uh, shout out to Penny for having the original notebook computer um, back in the eighties before <laughs> such things even yeah. existed. Right. Good for her. I always wanted that yeah. damn book. Yeah, I think I we all did. Book. For sure. Okay, that's definitely one of my favorites. Now, here's another one that uh, I've heard uh, around for a long time. And like I said, I have my fingers in a lot of pop culture pies, so I've, I mean, I've heard a lot of things. So, uh, The yeah. Flintstones. Flintstones takes place after an apocalypse. It's right in the theme song. They're a modern Stone Age family. This explains why they have so many Industrial Age conveniences, which are now powered by animals, and why they celebrate Christmas. And how they actually, met the Jetsons. Well, I mean, yeah, that's. I was going to say that. I, I have to add a layer to that because I've heard kind of like a corollary to that, that the Jetsons and the Flintstones exist in the same universe, but it's an allegory about social castes. The Flintstones are on the ground digging around in rocks because they're the working class, kind of like the movie, what was the movie with Matt Damon and Jodie Foster um, that was kind of the based on Halo? Uh, Elysium. Elysium. Um, where the rich people live in the sky and the poor people are left scrabbling for crumbs on the ground, I heard somewhere, because you never see the ground, the Jetsons, they're always there in these elevated space-age houses, and they zip around in the flying cars, and they're above the clouds. So the theory being, that I heard, that the Jetsons are the ruling class, they're the elites, they're the 1% of that universe, they're the rich, and the Flintstones are the poor. So they're on the ground, digging in the dirt and digging up rocks, the Jetsons are in the sky, you know, with their futuristic uh, sky cities. Um, and there the two shall ever intersect, really. Yeah. It's like the yeah. uh, the the Eloy and the Morlocks and the uh, the time travel uh, the HG Wells. You know, there there's the below ground grunts and then there's the the above the clouds elite and that that also is one of those things I just can't really find a whole lot of fault with. The art style is the same. Go. They did meet each other at one point. You know, there's the the studio Hanna Barbera did them both. So, you know, um, even if the creators didn't intend that, I think it's a very easy line to draw between the two. Exactly. Uh, we're going to move on to Harry Potter now. Uh, I'm well versed in Harry Potter, whether I want to be or not anymore these days. It's a touchy mm. subject. It's a problematic but, fandom uh, these days. It, it really is. Uh, the character of Argus Filch. You familiar? Uh, was he the Auror? I'm trying no, to remember. He was which the groundskeeper at Hogwarts. Or not groundskeeper. He was the. Uh, oh, I thought that was uh, the. That was, that was Hagrid. Like, excuse oh, he, me. He wasn't the groundskeeper. He was kind of the. Oh, the Fil- Filch was like the guy with the cat on the inside. Yeah, okay. I mm-hmm. yeah. I remember he was played by the character actor, um, whose name I can't remember, but he was great in that movie. Same guy who played uh, uh, Dude in in Game of Thrones, and it was wonderful to watch him get his throat slit. Um, Okay, so this revolves around Argus Filch. Mrs. Norris, his cat, is a person Mm -hmm. who transformed herself into a cat and now can't change back. This explains why Argus Filch is so close to her, and why he's struggling in vain to learn how to use magic, even though he's a muggle. You've murdered my cat. I'll kill you. I'll kill you! Hmm? What do you think? Well, I mean, uh... Can you, you know, get stuck in a transformation? I think they did prove that in uh, one of those Fantastic Beast movies, because they had that woman who turned into uh, Nagini, the snake, yeah. which ended up being... Uh, 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 Voldemort's pet, uh, and, and never really transfigured after that point. So, I mean, I guess there's pr- uh, prerequisite for uh, an animagus who's stuck in a particular form. Minerva McGonagall, her shapeshift as a cat, so it's not unheard mm-hmm. of in the universe to to be able to do that. 
Um, mm-hmm. I mean that you know it's it's it kind of goes back to the uh, the whole Doctor Claw thing, finding a motivation for a character to explain away a character quirk that you know kind of makes sense on its own, but has to have come from somewhere. Because um, yeah, I mean those those kids are in school; they're in Hogwarts for what seven movies, and and uh, so I'm not saying cats. I mean I've known cats have lived in the, into you know, twenty human years, so uh, that's not entirely unheard of. But I mean it's it's not. Uh, I don't think it's that much of a stretch. Because he's never without that cat, and he does demonstrate a very strong propensity for trying to learn how to do things that, you know, the Muggleborns in that universe traditionally struggle with. So, that's, that's right. that, that could be that could be that could be a thing, sure. Right. All right. So this one's a bit far fetched. I need you to stick with me here. Mm, okay. And that goes for all of you too. This one's weird. This one was weird by my standards. So, but it made me giggle, and that's why I'm reading this one. Yeah. Snow White. Okay. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Quote, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Coincidence? Clearly not. Snow White is a sequel to Lord of the Rings. Snow White has elven blood and is Gondorian royalty. And the magic mirror is Sauron. This takes some explanation, but it could be undeniably true. What do you think? Seven to the dwarf lords. Great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. Hi ho, hi ho, it's home from work we go. Hi ho, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's um, tenuous, but. It's tenuous. I'm not really it's seeing goofy. it. It's um, goofy. Yeah. It's a little bit goofy, appropriate for being Disney. Um, I, I don't. I think that's another case of somebody just really wanting something to be true, so they're sort of looking for any reason that it could be. Um, right. I mean, first of all, if you you know, not that we want to necessarily go by the Peter Jackson movies, but they, they were pretty faithful in certain respects. And if you look at um, the elves, with the exception of like Elrond, I think, all of the elves are very fair-skinned, so that works with Snow White. But they're also all pretty blonde. Uh, Galadriel was very blonde, Legolas is very blonde, um, so they Snow tend White's to trend towards... Yeah, I mean, she's got that raven black hair. So, you know, the elves tend to trend towards being very sort of like Aryan looking with the high cheekbones and the blonde hair and the fair skin to the point where they actually de-aged Orlando Bloom, even though he was only, I think, in his late 30s when they put him in the the Hobbit movies out of nowhere. Um, So, I don't know. I think just that alone would seem to indicate, and she doesn't have pointy ears, you know, um, and her hair is dark. Um, the, The fan theory I always heard about when it comes to Snow White is that it was... Um, an allegory for drug use. Because if you look at all the dwarves, they're all named after character traits. You've got Happy, uh, he's on Uppers. You've got Sleepy, he's on you know Downers. you got Grumpy, uh, he's on a depressant. Snow White obviously references cocaine because she's, you know, her name is Snow White and she's so upbeat. That was kind of the edgelord <laughs> gritty theory that I was heard about Snow White, is that every one of the, the dwarves represents a drug and Snow White is, is cocaine. And I mean, you've got the whole um, apple thing anyway. It's, you know, the drugged apple. So it's not that huge of a stretch to think that they're talking about not that they were talking about, but that it could be interpreted to be talking about narcotics in a way. Interesting. See, I hadn't heard that one. Dopey is just all weed. Dopey is just weed for days. <laughs> Dopey is baked off his tiny dwarf ass. Constantly. Off his nut. I swear and he's, to God. You know, and because weed has always been seen as a youthful drug, and Dopey's the only one without facial hair, as we all you know had pointed out in trivia dumps and whatnot. So, yeah, that's true. That's true. And what does that make Doc's prescribing? <laughs> yeah, he's the he's the plug. He's the guy that's hooking them all up. <laughs> okay, we'll do a couple more here before a break here. Now we got 
Okay, we're going to switch gears. Full House. Oh my, okay. Funny that Full House goes out of its way to make all three girls blonde through their dad has dark hair, Bob Saget. Or does their, as does, excuse me, as does their mom's brother, uh, which the mom is unseen, but her brother is seen all the time, Uncle Jesse. Mm -hmm. Raven-haired, Grecian, supposedly, Uncle Jesse. Conclusion. Joey is the girl's father. Sure explains why he was willing to move in and take care of the three. Thank you, thank you, cut it out. (laughs) Yeah, it Uh, does, it could. I mean, that goes back uh, again to, like, the whole Snow White thing. You know, you've got blonde people who are having dark-haired kids and vice versa. Um, I'm going to go ahead and call bullshit on that, if for no other reason than, like, you see, I'm going to, you see my hair. My hair is is dark brown. Um, When I was a kid, I had stick-straight blonde hair. And then when I was 12... Puberty started to happen, and immediately, like I started, the, my, my hair literally changed color overnight. Um, but I have uh, pictures from, from when I was a kid, and I, I look I look a lot like my dad now, but I didn't at all as a kid, and I always kind of wondered was I adopted. I looked in the mirror, and here I'm sitting there with six straight blonde hair and and uh, very fair skin, and then my dad was more olive skinned and uh, had darker hair, and I look more like him now. Um, but it can happen where you know you've got blonde little kids, and the, the hair color changes. Uh, the only thing that, besides the genetics, obviously, that, that Gregor Mendel would have a field day with, um, the thing that kind of pokes holes in that for me is if Uncle Joey was the kid's real dad and Mom is unseen, but Mom is accepted to have been married to the Danny character, your Bob Saget, why would he allow a guy who had, you know, basically fathered children out of wedlock with his wife into the house at all? He is like the, the wild card, though, because Uncle Jesse's related, the girls are all their dads or in theory, at least, their dad's kids. Um, but, you know, yeah, uh, uh, Dave Coulier kind of comes from nowhere within that family dynamic. He doesn't, he's not related. So, right, so are, we, expect, are, we, expect, right, are we expected to believe that he just uh, fathered these three kids off of her without, without Danny knowing? I mean, Danny Tanner was a bit of an idiot, but he wasn't not yeah. bright, you know, he was... He, I mean, he one was, kid, maybe, I could see one kid being illegitimate, because everybody knows that, you know, Khloe Kardashian's dad is not Robert Kardashian, that's kind of an open secret, um, but she's still in the family, she's on the show, um, but three kids, three different kids, three different times, I, I can I can see it maybe coming together once, maybe twice if he's like the most forgiving guy in the world, but not three times. Gotcha. Now that makes sense. I'm, I'm with you on that one. All right, we'll do one more, and we'll take a break. I'm going to let you pick which one you hear next. You ready? All right. <laughs> do you want Avatar? Not The Last Airbender. We're talking James Cameron uh, okay. Avatar. Or Titanic. Another oh, James Cameron it's a, movie. it's a Cameron block. Let's let's go with Titanic. I, I've seen that more recently, so it's fresher in my mind. All right. This is a weird one. Jack like from so. Titanic is a woman passing as a man, or maybe is a trans man. This explains why they cast androgynous Leonardo DiCaprio in the part and why we never see Jack's bare chest, not even during sex, even though Rose gets an extended nude scene. I'm the king of the world! Um, okay, I'm going to say that's probably a case of the trans community looking for representation because they are so underrepresented in entertainment. Um... If, if that's something where, you know, folks who are looking for icons to cling on to want to um, find subtle things. Because, I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely, 
in keeping with the culture of the time that folks who are LGBTQ would not necessarily have the freedom to be who they were and would... Right. Um, who was who was the... Uh, there was a jazz musician, Sonny Tipton, I think was his name, who um, wound up um, trying to be a jazz musician and there were no female jazz musicians in the, in the, the era when he played and they didn't find out until after he died that he was um, trans, you know, and it was one of those things where he was married and had fathered a couple of children, and nobody can quite explain that, but he was, you know, when they were doing the autopsy, they found out that this was a person who had been kind of like, uh, you know, doing the Yentl thing for years, had, had been posing as a man so she could, he, or had, had been a man, identified as a man, in order to, um, to play trumpet in a jazz band, but was biologically a woman. So it's not unheard of in, in, in history or culture that somebody of that era would um, have a, a gender identity crisis for which there was no support network. Um, so you know, right, they I'm had nothing the, back then. Yeah, I'll, I'll give this one to the trans community. I'm going to say, you know, they deserve to have their heroes and heroines, and uh, uh, just purely for for the justice angle, I'm going to go ahead and give that one a thumbs up, <laughs> just just to give them something because they don't have enough. Right, and and just I don't mean to be all white savior about it, be like it's like it's my gift to give, but I mean shit, they you know they need this, so we'll give it to them. And you can do a lot worse than, than Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, come on. Dude's hot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's a good-looking right. dude, so, you know. We're going to take one more quick break. We come back. we got a bunch more to go through. Uh, we're going to kind of skip through them really quick here. But uh, I want to take a quick break. We'll come right back. All right, welcome back. So, how are you feeling? Pretty good. Pretty good. You I'm just glad that I, uh, you know, I haven't necessarily, there's been a couple things that I've been more familiar with than other things, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, that most of these aren't necessarily too obscure, right? that I've, I've got some working familiarity with things. So, of course, now that I said that, you're probably going to hit me with something I haven't seen. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's click through it. All right. So uh, we're going to kind of hit the speed round. You ready? Ready. Speed bag it, baby. Let's go. All right. So as we were talking about James Cameron's Avatar. In Avatar, connecting your tail to an animal lets you override them and control them. Jake connects his to the planet itself. So this means Awa, the planet goddess, must have overridden him. That's why he's so willing to betray Earth. Probably just talking to a tree right now. Um, yeah, kind of a stretch. I mean... Planets are, as we know, living organisms. Um, but uh, I think that's kind of like the, the... It reminds me of a joke from when I was a kid. Like, um, kid comes running in the house with a carrot and presents it to his mother, and he's all proud. And she's like, well, you get, did you get that from the garden? He said, yeah, I must be the strongest person in the world. But why do you say that? Well, I pulled this out of the garden, and the whole world was hanging out of the other end. I think it's sort of like looking for connections that don't necessarily exist and trying to... Uh, trying to... And th that's come up a couple of times. Just, just really trying to, to find a reason for something that... That is, is explained in, in a way that, that doesn't need that complicated of a rationale. All right, time. Ready. Monsters yeah. Incorporated. When someone in Monsters, Inc. brushes against kids, they swab them down and shave them because they're afraid of infection. But they don't quarantine him. That's because they're not afraid of germs. They're afraid of fleas, which carry germs. Fleas on kids will give monsters the Black Plague, as they did once before. <laughs> 2319! Well, you know, as we all know, um, you know, in a, in a society that doesn't really understand um, uh, microbiology, 
you know, they knew it, it's in the Bible that you're not supposed to eat pigs. Why? Because people got trichinosis before they understood what medicine was. And now it's like, yeah, fuck it, have a piece of bacon. We don't really care anymore. Um, some monster at some point got sick after touching a kid. Um, maybe it was related, maybe it wasn't, but that kind of sprung up around this practice and superstition of, you know, kids are filthy. They're our source of power. And, you know, the and screams of the are. children are our source of power. So, yeah, kids are filthy. Anybody, any parent knows that. So I think it's kind of like, if I can draw a parallel here between, um, you know, the, the delousing and the decontamination of somebody who brushes up against the power source, you would do the same thing if you were in the room with exposed nuclear rods in a nuclear plant, you know, um, or if you got coal on you while you were digging, you'd go hose off because you don't want to get black lungs. So I think maybe it's um, a reference to this is our source of power, but it is kind of inconvenient and unclean. So if we come into too close a contact with it, we have to go decontaminate ourselves in a way that's not going to, uh, to result in us getting hurt from being too close to the energy. Fair. SpongeBob SquarePants. SpongeBob lives in a place known as Bikini Bottom. Uh, if they're not talking about a bikini's bottom, they must be talking about the Bikini Atoll, where America tested its first nuclear weapons, which means all of the characters in SpongeBob are the result of mutations from nuclear radiation. Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, Captain! Um, we can speed bag this one as fast as we possibly can. I'm going to put an immediate stamp of approval on that. I've heard that before. And I, I accepted that as my own personal headcanon a long time ago. 100% true. Bikini Bottom is underneath Bikini Atoll, and all of, them, all of the, the characters are the result of, of nuclear mutations from nuclear testing. Sold. Slightly less impressive than Godzilla. Okay. <laughs> Star Wars. Luke Skywalker is a ghost in The Last Jedi. His disappearing at the end doesn't mean he dies from expending all of his energy. He moves on because he's finally finished all of his business in the physical world. Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. Um, yeah, I'm going to say that's probably accurate because we've seen that before. Um, you know, Sith, they get cut in half and they can live if you believe the whole like Darth Maul extended universe thing. Um, right. But Jedi, when, when the, aside of like the, the, um, the original trilogy, the, the prequels, um, when Order 66 goes on and they all get mowed down by, uh, by the, the, the Senate and the eventual Emperor, um, a Jedi can die a couple of ways. They can get cut down in battle, and that's kind of, that goes back to, um, you know, Lucas found a lot of the um, inspiration for a lot of these characters in, like, Kurosawa films. I mean, the Jedi are based on samurai in a lot of ways. So to be cut down in battle is honorable. But so is Harakiri. You know, if you are finished with your work and you're done, then you can go ahead and take yourself out. And that's also a warrior's death. So we see the two most revered Jedi in that universe, um, ben, uh, no, not, uh, Obi-Wan and also Luke, they don't get cut down in battle. They take themselves out. And if you watch, and th this is something else that's a matter of contention, kind of on the Han shot first level. But if you look at the, the, the fight scene, the original fight scene, um, in A New Hope between Vader and Kenobi, um, you know, you see Han and Leia and Luke kind of run out into the, the bay where the ships are, and then you see Ben look out at him, and he gets a grin on his face, stands up, turns off his lightsaber, and then Vader swings at him, but the robes are collapsing long before that, that lightsaber ever makes contact. Kenobi doesn't get cut in half, he just becomes one with the Force. He deletes himself. And then we see Luke do the same thing. So I think as a Jedi, if you reach a high enough plane of, of your development and you be, truly become like a master of the Jedi arts you can essentially like the samurai did, like the characters they're based on they can commit harakiri by just deleting their actual human form and becoming one with the force so 
that's 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 plausible to me. I'm right there with you on that. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Jack Sparrow mm-hmm. becomes a pirate because he refused to transport slaves for the East India Trading Company. Good on this you, unfortunately Jack. couldn't be spelled out in the final films because it would pretty firmly plant morally ambiguous Jack on the side of good. Um, it was hinted at, if I remember right. There was a scene where um, he talked about humans not being cargo. We had a deal, Jack. I contracted you to deliver cargo on my behalf. You chose to liberate it. People aren't cargo, mate. And so, yeah, um, Jack Sparrow is a classic anti-hero. You know, he's, he's a swashbuckling character. He's kind of the, the rakish rogue. He's the Errol Flynn of the, the aughts. Um, so mm-hmm. he is a lovable character, and he's, he's a guy that, that, despite himself, I think, manages to do good more often than he doesn't. He's in it for himself, but at the end of the day, he also wants to make sure that he protects his friends. So... Yeah, if I, I, I do. I, it was hinted at. If I remember right, it was hinted at when he talks about how humans aren't cargo. So that one, I think, is uh, there's enough evidence in the source material to yeah, say that's that's very kind of plausible. Thumbs up on it. Yeah. Very plausible. Shawshank Redemption. Andy mm. Dufresne and Shawshank Redemption really did commit those murders and was sentenced as well for them. Well, why shouldn't we think he's guilty? A trial found him guilty. Our only source of him being not guilty is Andy Dufresne himself who's a convicted criminal. Plus, he was a banker, which should be proof of of his guilt. Why'd you do it? I'm innocent, right? Just like everybody else here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and poo-poo that one, if for no other reason than Andy Dufresne's innocence is the entire crux of the story. If he's actually guilty, then the story completely falls apart. He is a, a man who is unjustly convicted of a crime, and he comes up with an ingenious long con to get out of it. His, his only crime was escaping from prison, but, you know, is escaping from prison while serving time for a crime you didn't commit really a crime? I don't think so. The, you know, like in your episode about plot armor and script immunity, I think this one falls apart only because the righteousness of the story and the euphoria that we feel when he's crawling through that shit pipe and has his second baptism hinges, in the rainstorm. hinges yeah. on being innocent. Just yeah. vomiting all over himself. His redemption doesn't work unless he's wrongly accused. So if he actually right. committed the crime, he should do the time and the whole story falls apart. So I'm not going to buy that one. Agreed. Uh, Game of Thrones. Why did the Mad King go mad in Game of Thrones? Well, we know why one person suffered mentally. Hodor. After Bran visited him in a vision. Now Bran also visits King Arius in a vision. Coincidence? I'm going to say something that's going to get me roasted by anybody listening to this podcast. I have never been able to get into Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is not really on my radar. Um, I watched a couple episodes um, here and there, and I understand it's a, it's a giant, overarching, branching narrative of different sub, of subplots and plot lines, and watching an episode out of context isn't really going to do anything for somebody who's not a fan, but... I watched three separate episodes of Game of Thrones with three different people who I knew in my life who wanted to watch the show while I was with them. And in every case, after the episode was over, these people who didn't know each other all turned to me and said, I'm sorry, that was actually a really boring episode. So I thought, what are the chances (laughs) you could pick out three episodes at random and they'd all be boring even to a fan? So I'm going to let you run away with this one. I have never seen Game of Thrones. And frankly, as much as this is going to get me roasted by the fan base, I probably won't. So this one's all you say. 
And, and I think of John Champion of uh, Mission Log fame when I think of this because uh, I've heard him uh, discuss with uh, uh, Ken Ray on his Next Generation uh, chats. He's talking about uh, the episodes that really bring you into a show. Uh, yeah. Is this the episode that you're going to show uh, a friend of yours? Is this your point of entry to tell somebody why they should right. be on board with this fandom? Or is it just an okay episode? Or is it a shitty episode? So right. uh, while Game of Thrones certainly had enough shitty episodes, <laughs> you got to find that one right episode to bring someone in to kind of get them hooked. And, and 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 I think that didn't happen with you, unfortunately. Now, as far as Bran, yeah, uh, yeah he drove Hodor crazy. He didn't mean to. And he was fledgling in his powers. But when he went into Hodor's mind, uh, he broke him. Hodor was never the same after that. He went back mm. in time inside Hodor's mind and broke him completely. Now, is that to say he did the same thing to King Eris? Or was King Eris just bloodthirsty uh, originally as was planned? It's hard to say because there's a lot of ties going back uh, really far in the mythos of uh, of the, the House Targaryen to, to show why uh, uh, Eris the Mad became Eris the Mad. But... I certainly think it's possibility that Bran inadvertently tinkered around in there a little bit and maybe caused a little bit of damage. I don't think he did all of it. I don't think he drove the Mad King mad, but I think there's definitely... He could have flipped a switch or two when he was in there. So, Well, you've clearly forgotten more about this than I'll ever know, so I defer to your superior <laughs> Game of Thrones knowledge on that subject. I've also read all the books, too, so that helps. Uh, let's see. Skipping a few. We're running out of time here, so we're going to keep going a little bit quicker. Uh, Shrek. Most of the characters from Shrek come from fairy tales, but what about Donkey? He's from Pinocchio. He's one of the boys transformed into donkeys on Pleasure Island, which would explain his ability to talk. Hey! I can fly! He can fly! He can fly! He can talk! <laughs> That's right, fool! Now I'm a flying talking donkey! You might have seen a house fly, maybe even a super fly, but I bet you ain't never seen a donkey fly. <laughs> uh, I, I remember hearing about talking donkeys and other fairy tales. There was a, uh, I'm going to probably fuck this name up, but I remember a, a fairy tale called the Bremen Town Musicians that had a talking donkey in it. Um, but I think because Shrek is so much of a play on, um, on the Disney thing, it's a big Disney spoof is really all it is, then I think that's probably the connection they wanted us to draw. So I'm going to go ahead and thumbs up that one. Now, keep in mind, of course, that doesn't explain how Donkey fathered babies with a dragon. Uh, that's it really something doesn't. That's something neither of us ever want to think about. Nope. That, that is ever. a question that does not ever need to be answered. Right. Um, let's skip down a few here. We're almost at the end. Okay. Spider-Man, Far From Home. Spider-Man All Far From Home is all about school shootings. Taken literally, the plot is about the world recovering from Thanos' stamp and from Tony's death. But what it really tells us is about kids quickly adapting and moving on in a world of constant tragedy. Over five years ago, half of all life in the universe, including our own Midtown High, was wiped from existence. But then, eight months ago, a band of brave heroes brought us back. They called it The Blip. Um, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, comic books have certainly always had a fantastic fantasy world spin 
on real-world issues, and Spider-Man more so than most. I mean, Spider-Man was invented by Stan Lee in the 60s to be a typical teenager with typical problems, not a god, not an all-powerful being, but like a kid who has to deal with being conflicted about being a superhero while he deals with acne, third-period math, and girls. Um, so <laughs> if, if nothing else, I think Spider-Man in particular has a very rich and, and well-documented history of, of dealing with real-world problems that teenagers face. So, yeah, I think that one's, one's uh, it's a good allegory. And I think they did it well, too. All right. This one's silly. The Santa Claus. Santa fakes his death in the Santa Claus. This explains why even though the sequel reveals Santa must have a wife, we see no grieving widow in the first movie. Santa and Mrs. Claus have slipped away together to Jamaica. Did not. And he's not Santa. Well, he was. Huh. Yeah, why the fuck not? I mean, <laughs> that's as plausible not? as anything else. Why right. not? That's that's as plausible as anything else. Sure, let's go with that. Let the man have a coconut drink on the beach. Fuck it. I mean, you know, they tell the he, the, the big ding on Santa is he only works one day a year. No, no, he only distributes one day a year. That guy's making toys and his elves are, are slaving away in the, the elven sweatshops all year round preparing for the big day. You know, there's been countless movies that have torn off the only 364 more days till Christmas as soon as the movie's over with. So, you know, he's, he's making toys all year round. The man needs a tropical vacation. He lives at the freaking North Pole, for Christ's sake. Give him, give him some, some, some Roman palm trees. Why not? I agree. Uh, Toy Story. In Toy Story, Andy's parents are divorced. We don't hear about this since the toys pay no attention to it. But Andy and his mom moved to a different, smaller house in the same town for no stated reason. A moving buddy. If you don't have one, get one. Uh, yeah, why not? I mean, Disney, uh, Pixar produced that movie before they were a subsidiary, or at least a sister company of Disney. Disney bought them many years later, but um, Disney got dinged a lot for being hard on moms for a long time. You know, whether it was Bambi, his mom got shot, or whether it was, you know, <laughs> orphans. And So I think maybe... Um, that might have been Pixar being sort of an antecedent to Disney at that point before they got absorbed, um, trying to uh, to make the point that, you know, a mom is an essential thing. And, and so maybe dad died, maybe they got divorced. But, um, you know, either way, they're, they're not, it's not, it's not crucial to the story that we explain that. So maybe it's just one of those things that got hinted at and it's picked up in the subtext. So sure, let's, let's, let's say that's, that's totally true. Plausible. Very, very yeah, plausible. Very much All so. right. And here's our last one. Are you ready, Jim? Drum roll, please. Uh, James Bond. James Bond's ball torture in Casino Royale leaves him sterile. In the film itself, Vesper Lind says he may become impotent. He instead goes on to have tons of sex. Doesn't he fear getting women pregnant? No, because he can't impregnate anyone. I never understood all these elaborate tortures. It's the simplest thing to cause more pain than a man can possibly enjoy. And of course, it's not only the immediate agony, but the knowledge that if you do not yield soon enough, there will be little left to identify you as a man. Yep, that makes sense to me. I mean... In, in the uh, Casino Royale, uh, the movie, the Daniel Craig version, was actually a remake. Well, no, it wasn't a remake. That's a lie. I just lied to you. Uh, Casino Royale was Ian Fleming's first 007 book. It had just never been interpreted on film until Daniel Craig came along and did it. So in the timeline, even though we've had several Bonds, several 007s who've, who've worn the number, 
um, Casino Royale was actually, uh, with Le Chiffre in the, the Baccarat game, was the first story in, that, that started off the whole James Bond mythos. They just didn't get to the film until years later. So in the timeline, that comes much, much earlier than, than Dr. No, which was the first film. Um, so yeah, that makes sense. He would become a, uh, quite the swordsman over the course of uh, his entire career. Because, you know, he has no fear of leaving any progeny behind. You know, it doesn't answer the STD question, but maybe user protection we don't see. They always cut away with the discretion shot to the blowing curtains or whatever. So, I mean, <laughs> it would certainly... It's just like in, in The Crow, when Eric Draven is immortal. The immortal have an attitude, so maybe the sterile have a very devil-may-care cavalier attitude towards casual sex. So, yeah, we'll say that's true. I agree, and then I think anyone who's seen that scene would kind of understand the fact that yeah, he's never producing. Anyone who's ever watched that, it's it's hard to watch. Anybody it's who owns a pair of balls, just that's the worst scene in any James Bond movie. So yeah, it's it was it was rough to get through. All right, Jim. Now we have gone through quite a few of these conspiracy theories, and I think you've handled yourself with a plum. We didn't come across anything really outside of Game of Thrones that you had no experience with, which hmm. I think speaks well to your pop culture and geek cred. All this being said, kind of a back-ass uh, interview for the position that you've already been given. But uh, <laughs> I, think, I think this is all well and good. And I, I welcome uh, everyone out there. I want you to uh, email or uh, send a message to our Facebook, facebook.com forward slash feel your fandom. Let us know where you stand on any one of these uh, uh, outlandish... Uh, fan theories or headcanons and hell give us your own tell us where you diverge from uh, the popular accepted thoughts uh, I want to hear where you guys stand with this but uh, Jim I think you did well I think much uh, appreciated and and I, I can't wait to to have you more involved and, and incorporated into this show uh, I welcome my new troll overlords I, I can't <laughs> wait to to have you be a member of the show and, and I'm just happy to have you well, I'm happy to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun going forward, and I'm looking uh, forward to hopefully, um, you know, continuing to only barely embarrass myself as things continue to crawl forward. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for uh, joining me today, and uh, thank you all for listening to another episode of the Fear Fandom Podcast. This has been our fan theory extravaganza. So, but uh, as always. Uh, keep an eye out on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash feelyourfandom or uh, feelyourfandom.buzzsprout.com for all of our latest episodes uh, going forward into uh, what's going to be an amazing season three. I can't wait. Uh, But until then, I want to remind you what I always remind you of is that truly everything is fandom and fandom is everything. Take care, everybody.